Hey, and welcome to the Palia Podcast. I'm Turi Munte. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization, everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, we'll talk with experts from across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Join us at palio.com, the encyclopedia of opinion. Today, we are thrilled to be talking to Adrian Barden. Adrian Barden is professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University, USA, and recently published The Truth About Denial, Bias and Self-Deception in Science, Politics, and Religion. Adrian, we're thrilled to have you on the Palio podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We live in polarized times, not just around ideas, but also around facts, endless contestation around alternative facts, fake news, selective statistics. You talk in your book about a sort of breakdown in the reality consensus, and that's frightening. Whether we should blame the economic crash of 2008, the tech revolution and automation, whether we should blame the media, social networks, postmodernism even, for relativizing the idea of truth. Your book, The Truth About Denial, asks us not to ignore something you call the murky psychological processes that motivate us to believe in things which aren't true. Can you unpack this core idea? What is denial? What is denialism? And how do you see it at work today? Well, we have a colloquial understanding of what it is when we say someone is in denial. And we mean there's something roughly like that there's there's some kind of emotional motivation to deny fact or evidence. So there's going to be something about ourselves or our situation or about the world that we are accustomed believing to believing that we're that we find comfortable to believe, that we find threatening not to believe. And uh it's a really evident fact about human psychology is that we're very capable of denying fact and evidence when we feel threatened enough by fact or evidence. Uh, so I distinguish between denial and denialism in the book, just for technical reasons. So where denial in the you know traditional colloquial sense refers to you know facts about my personal situation that I find threatening or uncomfortable. Whereas denialism I use to refer to the facts that are threatening to some sort of ideological worldview that I have, political, cultural, religious worldview. So I, I reserve the term denialism for that. So either way, whatever you're committed to believing with regard to your personal situation or with regard to some belief system you have about the world, when facts show up that are threatening to what you're really committed to believing, we experience a term I'm sure you're familiar with, cognitive dissonance, which is this uncomfortable feeling that we get when we see this, there's this discrepancy between our existing belief system and some incoming fact or evidence. But we have a choice as to how, so we, we are spurred to resolve dissonance, but we, we have a, a choice on some level of how to resolve dissonance. One is by altering our views, altering our belief system, but the other is by denying the evidence. And it's just an evident fact about human beings and human psychology is that 
we are quite capable of being very evidence, in fact, resistant. So that's frightening and fascinating. And before we go into how denialism works, how we respond to cognitive dissonance, you start your book with a very useful reminder that we must think about the mind in a slightly different way. Descartes was wrong. The mind is not a disembodied thing. It exists very much as part of nature. And therefore, um, if the mind is a bodily function, we must ask what causes it to work the way that it does. As I understand your framing of it, the fundamental point here is that the mind has sometimes has two sometimes contradictory reasons for working epistemic on the one hand to ascertain knowledge and emotional slash social on the other for collaboration can you help open that up a little bit well yeah well you mentioned descartes first of all who in the classic judeo-christian tradition and the platonic tradition drew this sharp boundary between the mind and the body and if all we really are essentially is the mind and mentality, then the workings of the mind should be self-transparent to us. But that's a misconception. The mind, the mind is part of nature. It's, it's a product of our physical being and physical activity on the part of our bodies. And so in that light, there's no reason to think that its operations should be any more transparent to us than we can introspect on how our liver works or what's in our stomach. So to, to explain motivated reasoning I, uh, the i think the, the the frame to start with is uh, just a quick summary of our evolutionary history which makes sense out of um, the other motives we have beyond accuracy that would um, make us believe things that are not true and, and give us um, an advantage historically at least in believing things that are not true so so just quickly and this is a point that's been made by a lot of people um you know, the Homo sapiens and our and the pre-Homo sapiens ancestors evolved primarily in little groups, little family tri- little family groups, clan groups, little tribes through most of our history. And you know, Homo Homo habilis and you know the, our pre-Homo sapiens ancestors probably had very similar lifestyle. So in that context, we are forming beliefs and views about the way the world works. And now, in that context. There are, cer- there are certain beliefs that we really want to be accurate. You know, what, what plants um, can we eat and what plants are poisonous? That would be important to know. Is it day or night? Is it warm or cold? What do we do when we're cold? What warms us up? Those, those are types of beliefs that where we would have an advantage in, in forming, in developing systems of reasoning that would allow us to form accurate beliefs. But if you consider that our evolutionary niche was always this the social group was always social cooperation that's what gives us our advantage it's made us the dominant species on the planet it's our ability to get together with other people in our group and make plans and coordinate our activities if you see human evolution in that light you think like what's what's going to allow social cooperation well for the individual what's going to be really advantageous what's going to be necessary is to be able to integrate socially into your group so you need to know accurately you know what plants to eat what plants are poisonous but is it that important to be accurate with regard to what god to worship if your group worships you know god xyz or poseidon are you going to be that person who says well i'd like to see the evidence for this you know i'm not sure we have an accurate belief about what god to worship 
I mean, what's your best case scenario coming out of that? You know, you, you know, ostracism from the group at least, and quite possibly much worse. So within, on the level of, you know, large worldviews or, you know, ideological cultural beliefs on the part of the group that, you know, our religion is the one true religion, our race is the superior race, you're really better off adaptively having a belief system that um, integrates with the group's belief system rather than is necessarily um, is composed of accurate beliefs about the world. So all reasoning is motivated. There's always a goal to reasoning, even if the motivation is just is just accuracy. Um, sometimes, sometimes we want accuracy for the for the sake of survival or individual well-being. But there's all kinds of unconscious motives that can influence belief formation, particularly this social motive. We need to integrate into our larger community, and uh, this gives us a psychology in the long run that makes changes or 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 you know informational threats to our existing worldviews feel really threatening threatening to ourselves it's about it's about identity like if I, if I you know if i say to you if i say to somebody you know who are you tell me about yourself turi tell me about yourself and and you'd be likely to give me an answer like the following although these, these are not true things about you personally but th- this is uh, the kind of answers you give to when someone asks you them tell me about yourself you'd say well i'm i was born in texas and my but my grand, my my great grandparents immigrated from Scotland, and I'm a Methodist. I'm a social conservative and a member of the Republican Party. I also volunteer for the Special Olympics, you know, um, and volunteer for groups that advocate on behalf of autism because my child is has autism. So you 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 know you just told me all about yourself, but but every everything you just told me has to do with your connection to some your affiliation to some other group that is defined at least in part by its belief system its worldview and that's your identity that's who you are so when some information comes in that's threatening to some aspect of your identity that's going to feel like a personal attack my old business partner used to say who's who i should say as a is a sort of radical contrarian contrarian on almost everything used to like to say that people prefer to be wrong together than right alone yes the 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 point i think you're making here is that from an evolutionary perspective, that's the right call. Well, historically, it has been the right call. It's not necessarily the right call now, <laughs> but uh, you can. It, 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 the, the, it's an ideological explanation in, in terms of our history. Why do we have these dispositions? But that doesn't make them rational in the sense that we necessarily make the best decisions about what to believe in our current context. That makes sense. So onto this having anchored reasoning very much in sort of the emotional and social can you walk us through how motivated reasoning which is it's which i think you would say is all kinds of reasoning all reasoning is motivated in some way but can you walk us through some of the most egregious examples or the egregious forms of that motivated reasoning confirmation bias for example well there's the there's the personal and the political or ideological. So one instance of motivated reasoning on the on the personal side would be, you know, I'm I, I'm not an alcoholic, and in the face of we call that motivated reasoning because we're stipulating that in this case you actually have tons of evidence that you have a serious drinking problem. Your family has all left you and has declared that you have a drinking problem, and your doctor is telling you that your organs are failing. 
et cetera, et cetera. But people work very hard to, you know, rationalize their way out of that kind of admission. So on the on the larger and so on a larger societal or ideological scale, I might be committed to a, a small government ideology, a pro-business ideology. But now you're telling me that we have to completely revamp our economic system and our our systems of industrial production in response to climate change. And so that that t- turns into motivated reasoning. And people are really good, you know, adaptively, we're really good at rationalizing our beliefs, beliefs that for some reason we feel attached to or that we feel we need to hang on to for some personal, emotional, or, or social reason. Um, going back to your description of me as a Texan Republican, which I quite liked, those were declarations of identity masquerading as philosophical declarations. They weren't conceptual articulations so much as articulations of my appurtenance, where I belong. Is that the primary evolutionary function of that kind of rationalization? What are the end goals of motivated reasoning in that regard, evolutionarily? Well, when you talk about function, that can mean two different things. One is a teleological function, that is to say goal-oriented or indirected function of something. And artifacts have that kind of function. You know, I make a table to put things on. I make a chair to sit on. It has that teleological function. Human psychology, perhaps unfortunately, is not an artifact. It's something that's naturally developed. And when we say that aspects of our psychology have a function, we mean etiological function. And that's to say that Adaptively, this has worked for our ancestors and contributed to survival and fecundity. So it's, it's, it's a little, the term function can therefore be a little bit misleading when, it, when you're describing something like uh, human psychology or human anatomy. That's why we can't really answer questions like, you know, what's the function of the human appendix? Um, or what's the function of the, ta- the tailbone? Well, the tailbone doesn't have a function, it has a history, right? So human psychology has a history. Our, our tendency to you know, affiliate ourselves very strongly and very early on in our lives with identity groups has a history to it. Does it serve us sometimes in some contexts? Uh, sure, absolutely. It's, it's pro-social in certain contexts. And it can even be protective if you're in a community that's very hostile to certain other points of view. The ability to integrate yourself into that community in terms of their worldview would be advantageous to you now. But there's nothing necessarily advantageous about human psychology. It's it's a historical story, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, completely. I think I asked my question badly. What I meant to ask was, what is useful to us? What has been useful to us evolutionarily about the kind of motivated reasoning that you see in the way that we think today? What's the evolutionary psychology, in a sense, of the way we think today? Well, I think it goes back to social integration and thus our ability to cooperate with each other's and our ability to fit into a community. We, and we have lots of emotional motives that go along with that, like the, the intense, intense need for a sense of belonging, companionship, also you know, stems from what our ancestors, the way they had to live, which was together, which was in groups. And so that turns into you know, what we call in-group out-group thinking because groups, they define themselves in terms of their ideologies, in terms of their belief systems. They're going to contrast themselves with 
other groups. And uh, that, that naturally turns into hostility and uh, it turns into uh, conflict, but it also turns into, uh, switching back to advantages, it turns into group solidarity. It turns into a sense of community and it turns into, you know, living amongst people who you can uh, rely on and who you can trust. And that's why we see this divergence in um, what people are willing to believe is because, you know, most of our beliefs are based on trust. There's a few things that I know just from direct observation. You know, there's a table in front of me. The walls are painted blue. Two plus two is four. I can figure that out for myself. But, you know, what about uh, almost everything, everything else about the world? You know, how does electricity work? How does chemistry work? How does my toaster work? D- the planet Neptune. Tur- Turi, do you believe that the planet Neptune exists? So I have no doubts that the planet Neptune exists. But if you're like most people, you actually haven't seen it personally. So in in that case, you're relying on expertise or someone you regard as authoritative on the matter. And we're we're wired up because of this sociality to, to trust, discriminatively trust other people, like usually people who we feel are on our side, who we identify with in some way. That's why we get to the point where we, there are certain politicians we listen to and certain politicians who, whose claims we automatically discount, no matter what they're saying. There are certain media sources we listen to and certain sources we discount, no matter what they have to say. If, you know, if, if Donald Trump tells us COVID is a hoax, it, that's it. It's been politicized. If we identify with Trump or Trumpism or the Republican Party or conservatism, we know this, well, we, we automatically take this person to be on our side. And, and most of our beliefs are based on some kind of trust. And so we, we've already chosen to trust this person. If he had said the exact opposite thing from the beginning, we, we would probably see um, some very different behaviors. So here you're talking to the point that we outsource a huge amount of our thinking. Yeah. And perhaps some of the most important elements of our thinking, both as to whether Neptune exists, despite us not having seen it, through to whether God exists despite us not having seen him or her. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a, as I was reading your book, I wondered whether there was a difference in quality between the knowledge that we have about two plus two equals four and the felt knowledge of believing in God. Those, that, that felt experience of belief, is it a different form of knowledge, different experience of knowledge to the kind of knowledge that we're used to? employing day to day well that's that's a, that's indeed a very kind of deep and subtle question about belief and our confidence in it i mean I, I think that everything that happens that we're aware of could be described as a kind of feeling so i have a felt confidence in two plus two is four as you put it and and some people certainly have a deeply felt confidence that jesus is lord the, I, I find beliefs to be on the face of it more reliable or more likely to be reliable if I can't identify some motives uh, behind the belief that um, that are not accuracy related. It's very unlikely that you have some kind of uh, social or ideological motive to believe that two plus two is four as opposed to something else. A notable exception while we're on that subject is when they, you're convinced, the, the fellow's convinced in 1984 that two plus two is five, right? He, he's a, it's a remarkable instance of being given a, a motive to uh, right. something different about that kind of statement. But that that's, would be very unusual for that kind of 
statement. Now, what what God do I believe in? Well, I mean, just look at the uh, the tremendous, very high correlation between the God you were raised to believe in and the God you wind up believing in. It's it's a very strong correlation. So that automatically makes you a little more suspicious about uh, what's going on behind the scenes in terms of how this how how this person is assessing evidence or how this person is reasoning and what's driving that reasoning. Yes. Yeah, so again, back to the motivations around it. We're always asking, I suppose, cui bono? Is it accuracy or is it belonging? And in that instance, it feels like it's a lot more around belonging. But if we go back and ask and, and take as a starting point that a lot of our reasoning is done for emotional or social reasons, I want to ask you whether motivated reasoning actually works. We recently on the Palio podcast interviewed Karen Douglas, who's an expert on conspiracy theory another form of quite extreme motivated reasoning. Conspiracy believers very much end up where they are to satisfy profound emotional wants. But it turns out in that case that believing in conspiracy theories does not satisfy those wants. It actually alienates people ever more from the society that they're trying to be part of. Does um, motivated reasoning of the kind that you're describing does it work? Does it make people happier? I'm struck by the fact that all the statistics seem to show that religious people declare a higher satisfaction with their lives. You talk in your book about the value of positive illusions, that uh, having our hope dial up versus reality does very good things for very good things for us. Does motivated reasoning make us happier? I I think it's definitely can going back to uh, religious ideology or religiosity you automatically have a really tight community right there as soon as you adopt that belief you have a place you can go to where everyone's going to welcome you and see you as one of them as one of their own and that satisfies really powerful emotional psychological needs that we have conspiracy theories can conspiracy theories are obviously a extreme disruption of the reasoning process based on some underlying motivations. You can get a sense of community out of uh, being conspiracy theorists, especially in the age of social media. And I, I think, you know, pro-sociality is our number one motivator. It's not the only thing that can make this sort of thing work for us. You mentioned positive illusions. I think when it comes to things like um, uh, sexual competition or um, athletic endeavors, um, having a kind of unrealistic view of um, your capabilities uh, can actually be, you know, correlate with, you know, you, you just keep going and keep trying and actually, you know, develop some skills in the process. And uh, you, you have a better chance of succeeding if you start out having unrealistic expectations. Maybe that's also the reason why we always tell our children that they're special, right? Yeah. They can't all, they can't all be special. <laughs> About, approximately half of them are below average as a matter of fact, but it's, it's probably better if they don't think that they're below average from the beginning. Right. Hmm. Talking of competition, you discuss in your book the fact that there's an argument that those who are that reasoning, the capacity to reason, may actually have been a marker of success, not for accuracy, but purely for to demonstrate strength in debate. That actually the capacity to argue almost any side and win is a signifier of status and power in a group. The debating being more important than the accuracy. 
Well, that sounds like uh, what's been called the argumentative theory of reasoning, which is that going back to our evolutionary history that, you know, if, if, in, you know, integration and dominance within your group had to do with persuasion and getting people to cooperate with you, then the ability to argue whether your conclusions were right or wrong, right or wrong successfully might have been more important in a lot of contexts than having a, a you know, true set of, a set of beliefs about the world that were, you know, generally true. And so that could also, anything that, that contributes to social success, like being tall or good looking or being uh, good at arguing then is attractive to other people because that's, that's um, our number one, you know, signal that this is someone we want to be with. We want to make friends with, we want to mate with someone who's likely to be, you know, socially successful. So yeah, being able to debate or argue on this understanding would be, would be on that list of traits. Finally on this abstract question, We've gone over some of the reasons why motivated reasoning, why the emotional part of reasoning was so important evolutionarily. But are you on some level not surprised that we haven't evolved it out, that the need for accuracy in reasoning has not finally trumped it over the need for uh, the emotional social part of reasoning? Well, unfortunately, you, you know, human evolution doesn't work on that kind of time scale. We've only been in large societies for 5,000, 8,000 years or so, thanks to the development of agriculture. We've only been industrial in an industrial society for a few hundred years. And you can find, you know, possibly, you know, some micro changes in human physiology in response to even to industrial production over the course of a hundred years, but not much. So yeah, as, you know, as, as people say, you know, we're walking around dealing with the modern world with our, you know, Neanderthal brains and they're not going to, they're not going to change on that timescale. And unfortunately we don't have, we don't have the time to wait. It's a, it's a very serious situation. I'm going to come to that. I'm going to come to that with you later, but let's move into politics now. So you talk in detail about some of the motivated reasoning associated with our various different political tribes, the motivated reason that inform our, our, our political choices. One of the examples that you give in your book is the conservative support for supply-side economics. Can you give us a little bit more info on that? Well, if you look at even at how political conservatives define themselves, they define themselves in terms of the status quo. They're comfortable with traditional culture on the social level and the existing social and economic order on the economic level. Conservatives, by definition, you know, view what the, the, or, the order that the, the uh, and potentially you know, the economic order, the inequalities that have kind of uh, grown out of productive production over the last few hundred years. And they view that as well. If, if this is how, if this is what production has taken to us, if this is the social and economic order that we've arrived at while making ourselves so much richer in the process and better off in the process, that order must be good. So we should conserve it. I mean, that's that's really what political conservatism is. Now, if you have now you now they're faced with you know evidence of rampant economic inequality that are based on not on people's choices but on people's circumstances, and this is the fundamental disagreement between the left and the right on economics, which is the extent to which one situation is based on um, hard work and your productivity and the choices you make versus. Uh, your circumstances, unfairness in the system. 
So if you ask people, as a matter of fact, not opinion, but like in, in fact, when someone is poor, what is what is the primary cause? This is a stark difference between what a conservative or a liberal or progressive will tell you. Like it's primarily due to their choices, or the amount of work they put in, or it's primarily due to their circumstances or to structural facts about the economy. This is absolutely definitive of the distinction between conservatives and progressives. So as you'd expect from any other kind of ideological belief, if conservatives are presented with evidence that there is structural inequality, that there's unfairness, that it has more to do with circumstance than with choice, they will predictably deny that evidence and call up their own experts and have their own think tanks that will give you a different factual picture of the world. Now, in, in, you know, in another world or maybe in a maybe in a communist or heavily socialist context where you have structural equality where the where the state is really imposing equal outcomes regardless of what people put into the system then you can have the opposite problem and you can have the left denying uh, that we really should put more choice into the system that we're not being we're not being very productive as a society under this arrangement. And so you'd see, you know, you'd see the opposite denial of fact and reality and expertise from the left in that context. Where do these biases come from? What are the in- inputs to those original biases? You, d- you discuss in your book the idea of the family as our model for governance. Well, this is a controversial matter. That would, that would be yeah, the George Lakoff take on it is that it has a lot to do with your upbringing and indeed back to your family structure where conservatives have this kind of patriarchal, hierarchical, top-down, authoritative parent model. And he calls the, the, you know, he says that liberals are raised under the nurturant parent model, which is more egalitarian and and focuses on circumstance over over personal responsibility. So that's his, that's his story about how it comes about. There's some very controversial research about innate personality types or learned personality types that is on, on some level is predictive of your political orientation, you know, what your scores are on the, on the ocean personality test. Liberals will score higher on the O scale, the openness to experience scale, and conversely lower on the conscientiousness scale and the reverse for political conservatives. And if you just do the test, that predicts about 40% of the uh, difference. So there's, there's, it's probably a combination of all of the above. There's, there's cultural influence. There's how you were raised in your family context. There might be some, even some innate personality traits. But the highest correlation is, at least early on in your life, is, is what your parents believe. So that's, that's probably, your parent, and your parents are influenced by their community. So your parents, your community that has the biggest influence on how people turn out politically and thus not just sort of what their values are, but what, what facts and what they choose to believe about reality, like how economics works and what experts they choose to believe uh, in terms of, you know, telling them how society works. One of the areas that you touch on most deeply is science denialism, which in the current context of, Climate change is obviously an existential question for us all. But you differentiate between the kind of science denialism we see on, on the left and on the right. Can you give us, give us an overview of 
um, what the landscape looks like there before we jump into the the actual differences. So in in the modern context, and that's like from the say 60s and 70s onward, the most salient science out there is what the sociologists call impact science. You know, hitherto we had you know several hundred years of ramping up the the opposite, which is called production science, and the society overall benefited by the the wealth created by the you know in, increased abilities to produce to exploit resources but then the uh, the cost came due the bill came and we started to recognize the environmental and personal and societal impact of of industrial production and um the the science that was produced started to turn more towards that subject matter and that's ex- that's very well correlated with uh, a change in view on the part of different on the part of the different sides of the political spectrum on science in in the in the 1960s famously with Rachel Carson Carson for example the left was considered the anti-science side you know they're they're worried about pesticides they're worried about nuclear power they're worried about plastics they're worried about just pollution and industrial production. And everyone said, well, why are you, look, this has created the greatest, you know, society ever. We're healthier than ever. You know, we're richer than ever. What's wrong with you? Right. And then, but then, but then science itself started to turn in terms of what that became the predominant, you know, focus of various um, scientific fields turned, started to turn to the impacts of production. And that's when you see conservatives measurably for example, in the U.S. General Social Survey, starting in 1974, starting to express less and less trust in science as a as an institution, and in scientists as as figures who are reliable experts. So something very predictable happened when when science turned against production. Those who were um, conservatives committed committed to the status quo on production, on the social and economic order, started to get more and more suspicious of um, the scientific consensus. And this has just gotten worse and worse. I mean, it's gotten uh, people have gotten more and more polarized on the subject to the point where we have, as you put it, this massive existential threat to our very existence, and you have um, large swaths of the political spectrum just uh, denying the you know overwhelming scientific consensus on this issue. So let's go deeper there. I'd like to to get to really understand why it is what the motivated reasoning is behind that conservative rejection of man-made climate change. What are the, what are the triggers for conservatives here? The, the triggers, I think, are, are pretty clear. Conservatives have uh, um, allied themselves with the traditional industrial order, and that includes you know, a small government, you know, pro-business, small government, low regulation, low taxes on business. These are all, you know, classic elements of the political, on the economic side of the spectrum, what political conservatives favor. But there's no small government solution to climate change or overpopulation or resource depletion, or at least it's it's certainly pretty hard to figure out what that small government solution would be. But even before you get to the point of talking about solutions, the, the ver- even admitting to yourself that there is such a grave problem is is threatening right off the bat. And so it's not like you typically, as the evidence is building up, what we've seen is um, first the denial that there even is a problem. 
And it's starting to shift over to, well, there's a problem, but it's not human caused, or there's a problem, but any attempt to intervene, any major attempt to intervene in this problem will be too disruptive to the economy and will cause more suffering than good. So the forms of rationalization have involved. There's a little bit of retreat on the rationalization, but the reason why the rationalization is happening is pretty clear. It's, it's threatening to the traditional economic order. There's, there's, there's just no way to fix the problem without large disruptions. And that's, that's complete, completely anathema to the, to the conservative worldview. Adrian, there's an element here which I'm hearing, which is that an aversion to big government um, requires you not to believe in climate change, which will require big government to solve it. There's cognitive dissonance there. Is there also cognitive dissonance in just change of that magnitude full stop? Oh, yeah, I think so. I, you know, conservatism is, is characterized by what's a universal human bias. A status quo bias is a universal human bias. Other things being equal, we always prefer what is familiar. And conservatives, if we go back to you know personality types, are are definitely measurably more subject to favoring status quo over change. It's not clear that in another universe, you know, progressives uh, couldn't be the more status quo group. But you know, if you lived in this once again, it's you know, aggressively egalitarian society to the point where human flourishing was being limited by how aggressively egalitarian it is. You might, fi- you might find the left expressing more status quo bias in that instance. But the fact is, when things are going badly, it, it, you need change, change that's disruptive to the traditional order. And that's what conservatives are all about, is preserving the, this traditional order. And they're also more comfortable with hierarchy. And the modern capitalist society is, is hierarchical in terms of inequality. And that's they're, they're by definition, that's what attracts them to the ideology in the first place is is in part this uh, comfort with hierarchical and traditional systems of order. The idea here is that response to climate change would have to be so so systemic as to upend any recognizable order and also hierarchy that currently exists. And that's the cognitive dissonance. And that's what needs to be battled against with this motivational reasoning. Yeah, that's that's both probably true, but but really more to the point is that there's a perception that that's the case, and that's that's all you need to launch yourself onto politicizing the science on climate change. There's tons of science that isn't politicized. Most science isn't politicized. You know, if you tell a conservative this is how electricity works, they're like, okay, yeah, what's the big deal, right? If you tell them about the planet Neptune, they're like, oh, that's nice. There's a planet Neptune, right? <laughs> But but it, the question is what's been politicized. You know, uh, climate change was politicized well very easily early on because, of course, it, it's inherently threatening to the traditional order, as I mentioned. And then there's things that can get politicized just because, you know, in the case of, you know, COVID and wearing masks and social distancing, th- that that was probably started up being, you know, personally politically threatening to certain autocratic leaders around the world. And that's exactly where you see the worst, you know, national responses to COVID. And that was kind of a, that's kind of a top down thing. You know, if the leader is that like my chances of reelection are being impacted by this, they start denying it. But, but you have people who are already allied with them, who already feel a sense of identification with it, with them and their movement and their way of seeing things. And those people just go along with it. So it's kind of a top down uh, politicization of the science. So there's different avenues to politicizing science. But once it gets politicized, boy, it's politics now. It's not science anymore. 
and people are vicious about it. Adrian, there's there's no research on this, but just anecdotally, can you unpack or can you can you can you start to to look for the motivated reasoning around the political tribes that we've built up as a response to to COVID, the 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 no mask brigade, which seems to be very much oh. a sort of conservative response versus the versus the progressive or liberal one, which has been very much erring on the side of extreme caution. How would you unpack that? Yeah, there's there's different there's there's what people say their reasoning is behind mask refusal, and then there's there's it might be different from what is really going on. I think there might be some discrepancy between how people represent to themselves why they're against masks or or against you know aggressive measures to address the disease, and there's some discrepancy there between that and and I think how they really got to that point. People will give you this, you know, libertarian case. Well, you know, you can't tell me to wear a mask, and and they compare it to. It's it sounds like the same rationale for not having to wear seatbelts or motorcycle helmets or something like that. All the way to you know conspiracy theories about it. It's actually you know Bill Gates trying to inject a microchip into us using vaccines or something like that, or or an, or more broadly an attempt to impose socialism somehow uh, on society. But I, I think it it. The, the real origin is just that, well, the, the politicians and media figures that I identify with and that my community identifies with and the kind of viewpoints that now, now are signaled to me as that make me fit in with my community. This was told to me from the beginning that our side doesn't believe in this virus or our, our side at least discounts the significance of it. And our side is in favor of keeping the economy open. And now masks you know, become a signal. Signals are very important in so in you know our social lives. We're always trying to send signals to others that we belong, that we're that they can trust us, that we're part of that community. And masks have become a, an extraordinary symbol in certain political contexts, not not in a lot of the world, but in the U.S., for example. You there's a lot of places in the U.S. where you walk into a grocery store wearing a mask, and people just yell at you, and you're pl- immediately identified as the other. You are othered. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, just like, you know, in another context or in many contexts, your skin color identifies you as the other or some indication that you belong to a different religion identifies you as the other. Now, masks have just just like that, like flipping a switch, masks become a signal that is a powerful signal. Once it becomes uh, politicized, it's, it's a very it has a very powerful and immediate effect on people. And then I think they rationalize it. Then they say, well, it's about liberty. And, but I think that like in many cases of of denial. That's just a case of rationalizing what you already believed. I mean, uh, go back to climate change for a second, if, if I may. We know that if you're if you're a conservative and you're denying climate change, you're more likely to be deny climate change as a conservative if you're, if you're college educated. If you score higher on science literacy tests, you're more you're more likely generally to engage in in politicized you know science denial if you have um, higher political sophistication, if you have better quantitative reasoning skills. What does that tell us? Well, that tells us that's what's going on here is not reasoning, but rationalization. Yeah. Being educated or having some political sophistication just gives you more ammunition in rationalizing what you're already triggered to, to believe or triggered to deny in this case. So in the case of climate change, the more you know about solar flares or Milankovitch cycles, the more you can articulate um, a rationale for the belief you're already inclined to adopt or the belief system you're already attracted to. In the case of masks, the more you can 
the more like language of libertarianism you have available, the more you can rationalize your refusal to wear masks, even while at the same time, you know, on the inside, I'm like, uh, don't breathe in my face. Gotcha. I feel like we're beating up a lot on conservative responses to science or conservative rationalization. Can you give me some examples of progressives or liberals doing the same thing with science? Leftists, progressive liberals are definitely not some kind of superior species of human being. They have the same fundamental human psychology. They probably have an easier time trusting climate science or public health experts because they're already basically ideologically allied with the kinds of messages that you're getting from those sources. To give an example, some examples of, of scientific conclusions that really will trigger you know, leftist denialism, a really good example is um, the safe evidence of the safety of genetically modified foods. There was a report, a big report, a meta-study from the um, National Academy of Sciences, I think about four or five years ago, where they, where they, they did, did a meta-study of you know, 70 or 80 scientific papers on the, the impacts of genetically modified foods on personal health, on the environment, on communities. And they just reported, like, you know, we've looked at all these studies, we just can't find any consistent negative impacts. And the leftists were, from the beginning, as soon as you say, you know, genetically modified food or genetically modified crops to an environmentalist progressive, that sounds bad to them. Uh, they feel bad about that from the beginning. And and when the NAS comes out, I saw my own friends, my own progressive sense immediately, oh, the NAS is in the pocket of big agriculture. Uh, jumping immediately at to a conspiracy theory, right? You know, Monsanto is behind this report. You know, NAS is, is some really distinguished, uh, very conscientious people. And, 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 and but you, you know, you see that kind of immediate denialism when it comes to, when anything, you know, inconvenient pops up. Because leftists don't know more about science than, you know, right-wingers. There's no advantage in science literacy. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not as though they, they have a better grasp of genetics or climate than the right does. They're just they're just allied uh, and predisposed. They're allied with the groups that that are giving them messages on climate for the most part, and they're predisposed to believe those messages. And so, same thing on the right side. It's uh, so it's still it's all fundamental human psychology, and it just depends like what's most salient at the time, like what's what's the message, and who's delivering the message. That's fascinating. So I'd like to end with with. You, some tips from you. We've got a major personal challenge, which is that all of us are engaged on a daily basis, sort of a, as a starting point. All our reasoning is motivated. How do we, how do we address that issue in ourselves? You talked about alcoholics at the start of this podcast. The first step in um, in Alcoholics Anonymous is acknowledging that you have a problem. But how do we take yeah. it? How do we take that forward on a personal level? And then the second question that I've got to ask you is really around this systemic existential issue of, of climate change. We are not, to your point earlier, we are not, we don't have the time to fix motivated reasoning on an evolutionary level. Climate change is, is, is happening and happening at an existentially threatening pace today. What do we do there? How do we fix that problem? Okay, so first, first on alcoholism. You're right. The, the first step and the hardest step is admitting that you have a problem. The problem with denial generally is that people in denial are motivated to stay in denial. 
there's there, the, the premise of your question is, is that we have some motive to unmotivate ourselves in the case it's, it's actually easier in the case of alcoholism because you do have an interest in your own personal health or your relationships with your family and friends and then alcoholism would you know, disrupt both of those things so there is a motive there what about to make a more healthy environment to you know fix the climate well if that's already important to us then we're already listening to relevant experts so you know if the problem is the folks who aren't particularly motivated to unmotivate themselves they have to, it has to be they i mean they they presumably want a future for humanity and a healthy environment too but they're obviously not um, prioritizing that over the other motives that are getting in, that are leading them towards climate science denial if you're primarily motivated to preserve the existing social and economic order you know you get you got to figure out you, somehow you have to be converted to finding your interest in in undermining you know that belief system and and rejecting that belief system in favor of a rather radical change any way you slice it that's tough there so there there's a school of thought and it's the most attractive and immediate option to most people looking at the problem of science communication on the subject of climate, which is that what we need to do is we need to frame the message better. And we're framing is, is basically a kind of marketing. We got to show people that it's, it's within their value system. It's within their belief system to want to preserve or conserve the environment. We talk about, you know, to, to white evangelicals who are very, very high on rejecting climate science for reasons that have obviously nothing to do with science. We tell them, well, this is about uh, caring for God's creation, right? And we tell conservatives, you know, this is about conserving the environment. So these are ways of kind of framing the message. We try to have messenger, you know, in what we call in-group messengers deliver these messages. We want conservatives to deliver the message, or, or like, like that. We see it seems like that would be the most effective way. The most famous example, a lot of people talk about the, the Catherine Hayhoe, the evangelical Christian climate scientist, and she and she's trying to work her. She, she goes to these communities, you know, right-wing evangelical communities, and she tries to work her identity as an, as an in-group messenger and, and craft her messages. Well, that's, that sounds like the answer to a lot of people. I don't think the data really supports the, the efficacy of that kind of intervention. I mean, what you're going up against there is this entire lifetime of cultural identifications and loyalties that when you, when you, try to you know, throw a little bit of marketing at that. It's like, uh, it's like that, uh, the, the King, King Canute who, who stood and tried to stop the tides from coming in with the sword. Right. I, I, I favor more the, the Dan Cahan's approach, a, a very well-known uh, social scientist at Yale and anyone interested in this topic should certainly be uh, looking at what, what he's done. He talks about depoliticizing the issue by, not by trying to reframe it, but by just, but was like, like taking it down to the local level in particular where he, where he sees, he has seen the most success and persuasively is argued is when you go to a local community and you say, we have a problem with the water supply. We have a problem with drought. We have a problem with rising ocean level, right? And we have a problem with flooding now in this community. And now as members of this community, notice the in-grouping that happened right there. As members of this community, we're all concerned about flooding or we're all concerned about drought in a you know, Colorado agricultural community. So the question is, how do we, you know, let's, let's start by worrying about that. Let's not talk about climate change and, 
and that's and that that's his route towards depoliticizing the issue. And you see uh, some success using this approach at the local level. For example, there's a there's a Southeast Florida intercommunity movement dealing with you know seawater intrusion into the freshwater supply, and that's obviously something everybody's concerned about. Everybody can feel like they're part of the same group. They're part of the same interest group with regard to that. So that's where you see the best success, as opposed to you know just flying in, you know, helicoptering in and doing some marketing and then helicoptering out again. Uh, it, it's a little bit, it's still a little bit of a pessimistic view to say that that's effective because if that's all that's effective, that's not going to do the trick because obviously by definition, you're just addressing issues of local concern. How do you, the question is, how do you broaden that out to larger, you know, national and global action? It's like with COVID, it's like with uh, COVID denialism. You would start want to start by saying, like, look, how are we going to – our hospitals are full. The ICUs are full. We can't send the kids back to school. Our hospitals, right? Your hospitals are full. Your schools are not open. What do we do about that? But it's very hard to get from that out to, like, okay, here's major change at the federal level. It, it's hard to see the, the bridge from one to the other, and it's even worse with climate because you need, you need action at the global level. That is um, not consoling. But super interesting. So last question, if we're stuck in our ideological trenches and we wield motivated reasoning brilliantly, this motivated reasoning evolved over millennia to keep us in those trenches, how does culture change? Cohort replacement, by which I mean well, generations passing away? Well, we're, we're, we're seeing generational change, just talking about the United States again but probably also applicable to a lot of Western nations. We're seeing a lot of difference between the young and the old. Then the younger generations are much more concerned about environment for, I guess, kind of obvious reasons. And, you know, and it's not, and it's, I would expect that to continue because the problem's not going away. And in their lifetime, it's going to get worse. And they know that. So their interest is being, is being, um, triggered is their their interests are are at stake here just like you'd see more anti-war activism when there's a draft than when you're dealing with the volunteer only army and then when the draft goes away the interest in anti-war activism disappears right but the environmental problems are not going away so i would i'm optimistic in the sense that i think there'll be a as a generation generationally there's going to be a greater and greater interest in these issues, greater prioritization of these issues. I hope it all uh, works out in time. I, it's, it's difficult for me. I mean, I know I sound a little pessimistic about it. It's a little difficult for me to see how, given you know the slowness of how our human psychology evolves and of how we get societal change and cultural change. These, th- these changes happen, but it takes a lot of time. And uh, the situation is urgent. I wish we weren't ending there, Adrian. I wish you had a, a tune to whistle. But precisely to your point about reasoning, sometimes we reason for emotional reasons and others for accuracy. So I'm grateful for the accuracy and unhappy emotionally. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fascinating and I've loved talking to you. It's been great. Thank you so much. That was the Parlia podcast from Parlia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion.